The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. It's been several weeks uh, since we've been in the book of Ezra, uh, but I think we've got an incredible, challenging, and I think very encouraging message tonight. Um, Ezra chapter 4, things shift a little bit in our story. Um, so far, the news has been really good, but you'll see right away the tone, the words, the tactics of the enemy drastically shift. So pick up with me, verse 1. Uh, we'll read through verse 6, and then we'll kind of highlight the rest of the chapters we make our way through. We read this. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. Holy Spirit, we thank you to be in your house. We thank you, Lord. Even that song we sang, Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, you are the God who provides. You are the provider. And I pray tonight you would provide the words of life that we need to hear. You are the one who has provided the gift of the Holy Spirit who teaches us and guides us. And Holy Spirit, we know that you're here, you're with us, you're in us. And so we just pray you would take your word and make it come alive. To those who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray tonight would be a night of salvation. For those of us who do, tonight would be a night of encouragement, change, and transformation. Ultimately, Jesus, we want to see you lifted up because when you are lifted up, all men and women Young and old are drawn unto you, and that's what we desire more than anything else. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of the message is The Resistance, parentheses, The Empire Strikes Back. And yeah, if you are a Star Wars fan, you probably got the reference. Uh, the first week, chapter one was the return. Chapter two was um, the remnant. Chapter three was the restoration. And so I thought, the resistance, it sounded great. It rhymes, it fit with the chapters. But really what we see tonight kind of is indicative. It reminded me, if you've seen the, the trilogies, the, the several of the, the whole you know, chronology of the Star Wars movies, there's a lot of things going on. But one thing I, it just hit me, it's, it's kind of interesting. Nine different movies, and the enemy just keeps showing up. You know, you're, you're watching the movie, and you're like, wait a minute, didn't we blow that Death Star up a couple of movies ago, and it's back? I thought those stormtroopers are gone. What are they still doing here? The emperor's dead. No, he's alive. No, the enemy's out front. No, he's hiding. And you see throughout, there's always this resistance. Well, here in chapter four of the book of Ezra, we see the empire strike back. Because up until this point, man, it has been incredible. 
Chapter one, verse five, we read about how the spirit of God stirred the people of God to return to the land, a second exodus. The exiles, literally the Hebrew says the sons of exile were brought back. Those who heard the word of God, those who believed the word of God said, yes, I am going back to the promised land. I want to be part of the restoration. I want to help build the the house of God, the city of God. I want to be part of the prophetic call to bring salvation to the entire world. And we've seen nothing so far but just incredible blessing. Yeah, there's a little bit of struggle. But for the most part, there's just been great momentum. Things have been pushing forward. God is showing up. At the end of chapter 3, there's a great shout of joy. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, we, we ended the night just shouting the name of Jesus. Everything's going great until chapter four. Literally, the empire strikes back. The Persian empire pushes back. But beyond the Persian empire, we know as believers, there's forces at work. There's always things behind that are pushing back. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness. Yes, there's a physical enemy that we're dealing with, but there's always a spiritual enemy that is pushing back. And God had been keeping his word, the restoration, and now what was so easy becomes difficult. What was so clear before now is cloudy. Where before they were certain that God was on their side, they're in this place now of going, I don't get it. What's going on? Why why the change? What happened? What shifted? And maybe that's your life. Maybe you're in a season where you, you were just, things were just going great. I mean, God was speaking, God was moving, there was healing, there was provision, there was all kinds of stuff, and it's like, man, you are just locked into the center of God, and all of a sudden, bam, you're like, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? Did I miss God? Did I hang a left when I should have gone right? Did I say the wrong thing? Did I do the wrong thing? And maybe you find yourself in a place where you're like, I don't get it. Well, let's see tonight, because I believe there's some great encouragement. I want to shift gears just a little bit and make this personal. And I want to think about something. I have a picture up here of an acorn and an oak tree. And most of us know, I don't have to you know, convince you that the acorn eventually becomes an oak tree, but most of us have probably held some kind of tree seed, some kind of acorn, and we look at that. And this is say, use your imagination, you had no idea what an acorn was and what it could do, that it could somehow someday be that. That within that acorn, the DNA that God had put within that little seed, the ability for it to grow into this incredibly beautiful, strong, life-giving, shade-giving, this place of refuge, this place of beauty. We, we sometimes take for granted when we just see an incredible tree, all that it went through to get to that place. And I bring that up because sometimes we read about people of God, either in the, in the word of God or even in history, and sometimes we see kind of the end result, and we take for granted the miracle that it took to get that man or that woman to that place. We don't always think about the storms that they went through, the resistance that they endured, the seasons of drought that caused their roots to go deeper, the little bugs and pestilence that wanted to attack the bark and get at it that caused it to be thicker, and all all the while, all those things allowed it to get deeper roots and higher branches to become that oak tree that God designed it to be. Why do I bring the analogy up? Because that's exactly what God says he's doing in your life and my life. If you have your Bible, turn real quick. We're going to come back, but look at Isaiah 61. I love this passage of scripture. It speaks of Jesus and what he came to do. And in fact, he said this about himself. Isaiah chapter 61. 
we read this. And you remember Jesus began in the synagogue claiming this for himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to claim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. God wants to set some of you free tonight, those of you who are bound to bring freedom, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And some of you need comfort tonight. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness. Oh, Jesus, pour your oil of gladness tonight instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit or a spirit of heaviness. Listen, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You see, what God is doing in all of our life, the desire of Jesus that you and me, we would be oaks of righteousness an oak is an incredible picture of something that's strong, that's lasting, that's stable, that has been through stuff, that has seen things, but has come out on the other side. And what we come to here in this point of Ezra, really now until the end of Nehemiah, we come into a whole new theme of conflict. Ezra and Nehemiah originally were one book, and they tell the story of the people of God returning from Babylon and Persia to be restored and reestablished. And so it tells this story, and from here on out, we see nothing but conflict. Every, listen, everything that is attempted for God will be challenged. Every movement forward will be met with resistance from the enemy. But more than that, we will continue to see God show up and show off. God responds when his people say, I'm holding on, I'm moving forward in faith and obedience. There's setbacks along the way. God will send his prophets to bring the word of the Lord that will revive his people, but the word of God, the will of God, is accomplished. So simply tonight, we're going to see the enemy and how he hits back, some of the tactics of the enemy and the response of the righteous. Pick up with me again. Verse 1, we just read this. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah, some of your translations say literally the enemies of Judah, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord God, they approach, they respond. Remember I said at the end of chapter 3, if you want to even peek back up there, look at the last couple of verses, what did we see there? This great celebration. Remember they had rebuilt the altar, the place where they could worship, where their sin was atoned for. But then more than that, then they laid the foundation of the temple, and it says all of the choir... The worship band, they, they, they began to play, they began to sing, and what happened? A shout went up. You're awake now. <laughs> so much so that God heard, God responded, but listen, the enemy heard as well. It says here in chapter four, the enemy heard. Well, when did they hear? I, I can't help but put those connections together, that there was a shout that went up, and the enemy was aroused and responded. And some of you are thinking, maybe I won't shout so loud, so the enemy just stays at bay. Maybe they could have been a little more muted in their celebration. That's what the enemy would always want you to do. Just, you know, just calm down a little bit. Don't get too excited. You know, just, you know, keep it easy. Keep your head down and you won't experience much. That, that might be true, but you'll never experience the power and the blessings of God. You'll never get to see and testify of God showing up greatly in your life. You'll get to heaven, but just. Oh, may we be a people who learn to shout and who recognize, yeah, the enemy may come, but our God, but our God is bigger. So chapter four begins with these enemies, these adversaries, responding to a shout of joy, responding to the people of God, obeying God. 
hey, the kingdom is advancing. We've got to push back. Now, I need to explain a little something, because I know you, some of you guys, if you read this chapter like I did the first time, it, took, it literally took me like, what is going on here? I was a bit confused, and I, oh, sometimes I'm very thankful for commentaries that help explain things. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Tenet. I always make movie references. I don't know. But if you saw Tenet, I, I still don't understand backwards, forward, this, that. Well, chapter four is a little bit like that. And what do I mean by that is when Ezra writes chapter four, he does not write, listen, chronologically, he writes thematically. And what I mean by it, he's choosing the theme of conflict because he actually records events that take place almost over a period of 80 years. And in fact, I bet you didn't realize this, Ezra up until this point is not even in the story. Ezra actually doesn't show back up in Israel till chapter seven. So Ezra, the priest who writes this, doesn't even show up in his own story till chapter seven. And some of you are going, what? I didn't, I, what? So just to kind of give us a frame of reference, see, the exiles return, they begin to build the temple. There's this opposition, it ceases. And eventually, under a different king, Ezra comes back and slightly after that, Nehemiah comes back. But here in chapter four, there's this theme of conflict. And like I said, it's gonna be a, a theme that will continue to be carried out. And so we're focusing on this and really next week, you need to come back because next week is a kind of a two-parter because particularly five and six are the good news on the other side of chapter four. We get a glimmer tonight, but really next week is awesome. It's so cool how God completely turns the table of the enemy. I can't wait to share that with you. But during this period, like I said, about 80 years, just so you know, because some of you guys are like geeked out Bible students, this period also has Esther, the story of Esther. Under the king, we, we heard his name just a moment ago. I read Ahasuerus. Uh, it's the period of Ezra. It's the period of Nehemiah. It's also the time period when the prophet Haggai and Zechariah prophesy. In fact, their names will show up in chapter five. And so you're like, oh, wait a minute. But they're kind of later on in the Old Testament. It's just how it's arranged. But actually, that's what's happening during this period. Just to kind of give you a frame of reference to kind of help your mind, maybe at least a 30,000 foot. But again, keep this in mind, this theme is about resistance and conflict, this battle with the enemy, and ultimately, God showing up and God showing off. So continue with me. The enemies respond. The enemies push back. Verse 2, I want us to see their tactics, the enemy's strategies. Starts off sly, and then it very quickly moves into an outright overt attack. Verse 2, it says, they approached Zerubbabel. And I, I want us to hear how they probably approached. They approached with seemingly great hearts and great intentions. Hey, let us build with you. We worship your God as you do. In fact, we've been here sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, if you know your, your Bibles, you remember 200 years before this event, and some of you guys are, uh, Mr. Jackson's going to ask you about this tomorrow in Bible class, and so you, hopefully you're awake. But anyway, 200 years before this event, the Assyrians came in, and they, they conquered the northern part of Israel, and they took them away. And when the king of Assyria did that, he took people from other parts of the empire and put them in the land. And so when he did that, which a lot of the kings would do, they had this belief that every area on earth had a particular god. And because this newfound king, this ruler of the empire, wanted all the favor of the gods, he would move people around, but he wanted to make sure that God wasn't angry at him, so he would make sure these new people would worship God, the God of that area. So these people that are saying, hey, we've been here this whole time, we've been worshiping God, they were people who had been transplanted from somewhere else, and they were told, hey, you're here, you better worship this God. 
But we also know, listen, this is what's important because it kind of helps us explain the response of Israel. Because when you first read it, it seems like they're noble. Hey, we want to help build. Hey, we've been worshiping. Let us come alongside. And you're thinking, well, well Israel needs some friends, right? I mean, they're, they're real small at this point. It, it, they might be tempted to think, well, oh, man, this is like an answer to prayer. That they work so much. It's so big. We've got people that want to help. They're going to help come alongside of us. I mean, we need some alliances because, I mean, they're threatened. They're very vulnerable. So all these things could seem like, oh, this seems like a natural fit. But what do they say? You have no part in this. If you're not really paying attention, you might think, man, they sound like jerks, right? I mean, you have no part in this. This is ours. Listen, we need to understand what's actually going on because they're not being rude. Oh, they're, they're being firm, certainly, but the fear of God is on them because, see, these people were brought back, and yes, they worshiped God, but they also worshiped their gods, too. They worshiped God, but they also worshiped their gods. In fact, it's in your notes. 2 Kings 17, 33 says this. They worshiped the Lord, Yahweh, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. You see, the people in Ezra's time, or at that time that Ezra's speaking of, excuse me, they realized these people are compromised. There's a mixture about them. Yeah, they, they worship God, but they worship Baal. They worship Molech. They worship... There's a mixture, and the people of God have such a fear of God that, no, we can't, even though it might be expedient, though it might be helpful, we cannot allow this mixture. It will pollute us. There's such a fear of God on them that they say, no, we will not do this thing. The danger here is a, is a word, and it's the same danger we have. Listen, it's the word syncretism. Syncretism. It's what's happening in America all around, this pluralistic, hey, you can worship whatever you want to worship as long as it's okay that we worship what we worship and we worship it all together. In public, we all say the same thing. In private, do what you want. This syncretism, kind of this mixing, this blending. And listen, the people of God need to understand that there's no such thing as syncretism in, in, with God. Amen. There has to be a fear of God. And, and at this point when Israel knew, like, hey, to, to say no to these people was dangerous. To say no to these people, look, these people had been there a while. They had alliances. They had some weight behind them. Israel certainly knew, listen, they certainly knew by saying no, they were creating enemies. But they would much rather have those people as enemies than God as an enemy. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? You see, sometimes we get so caught up, we don't want to offend people. Well, and I don't want to make an enemy of you. And you don't realize you, you, you're, you're so afraid to not make an enemy of someone or something that you've... You haven't even realized you've made an enemy of God. That you're so worried about not offending somebody else or someone else's. But on the other side, you've offended God. And maybe you're in a situation like this. Maybe this is something personal for someone here tonight. Maybe it's at work and maybe it's a situation. You're like, well, I don't know. I don't want to hurt for this. But you know, like there's the voice of the spirit is just saying, no, don't do this. God's saying, you trust me. You do it my way. Listen, at the end of the day, whose power do you really want? Whose help do you really want? Whose help is the one that ultimately can be trusted on and who will ultimately come through? Is it the people around or is it God? It's God. And here in the book of Ezra, these people know, you know what? No, you cannot be a part. There's a mixture. And it would be one thing that these people had forsaken these other ways. They, they, there could have been a process where they were a part, but it's obvious that they did not and would not do that. And we'll see ultimately their motives. As, if, as, we, as we move along, we see their motives. They, they, they weren't pure. Because at first they say, we just want to build. 
And the moment they're told no, man, the, 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 the gloves are off, the teeth are out. See, something my grandma used to pray. You see, when the, the enemy comes in and at first, he comes in like a slithering snake, you know? He doesn't always come in like a roaring lion. It's not always like, I'm Satan and I'm going to ruin your life. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, Satan, I know. But he comes in subtly. I mean, that's how he always comes in. And it's like, did God really say, you know, it's kind of subtle. Like, Let us build with you, you know? It's like, oh, and it, whatever. It is. Oh, you don't really need to do that. Is it really? Does God really care about that? Well, I don't know, maybe. But eventually, we'll see in just a second, when that doesn't work, he will come in like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, like Peter says. But my grandma used to pray, and I'm sorry, I got distracted a little bit. And man, she was a prayer warrior. Some of the things I, I, I so appreciate now that I'm older, I wish I would have learned the lessons earlier, but she would pray, and I was go, she would say, Lord, take the mask off the devil. Lord, take the mask off the devil. And for some of you, you're going to write that down. And when you're going to your prayer closet, and, you're, and what she meant by that was sometimes the enemy, you can't see what he's doing. And, and God exposed what the enemy's doing so I can know how to pray and what's going on. And what was happening here was like, it would seem like a mask. It seemed like a good thing. But praise God, they knew what was up. Praise God, they chose to fear the Lord over these people and to trust God. And they say, no, you will not have a part with us. Well, after that, the people, as you can imagine, weren't so thrilled. Verse 4, it says, And the people of the land didn't go, Well, I'm sorry, okay, good luck. No, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. Beyond that, it says, They made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. Listen, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, many years later, Darius reigns. And you remember Daniel and the lions, and that happens during the time of Darius. And the reign of Ahasuerus, we know the story of Esther takes place during his reign. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote, listen, an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. What does the enemy do where he, before he tried to compromise? Now it's outright discouragement. He tries to discredit them. He tries fear, innuendo, bribery. It's an outright assault. Ultimately, it's not even to get the work to stop. Basically, they're almost provoking a holocaust against the people of God. We see this pattern repeated throughout history. They are willing to do, and we'll see, and say whatever it takes to stop God's work and to stop the people of God. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you have been on the receiving end of people trying, used by the enemy, trying to stop the work of God, trying to stop the work that God is doing in your life. And sadly, what we'll see here, actually for 16 years, listen, 16 years, the construction on the temple ceases. And so for a time, their, their tactics seemed to work. For a time, the work and the movement that they had been experiencing, the wave that was pushing them forward seems to be stopped. And for 16 years, there's not a stone that is placed upon another. And we'll see next week when Haggai and Zechariah start to prophesy and God begins to stir up his people. But their, their tactics seem to work. But praise God, they refuse to compromise. They will not give an inch. And here's the thing, though. It doesn't seem like they're blessed for it. They don't compromise, and yet the enemy keeps going. And for 16 years, like I said, the, the work doesn't move forward. And I want to say to some of you tonight, just because you're experiencing opposition does not mean you're out of the will of God. In fact, it could very well mean you're right in the middle of the will of God. 
And just because things aren't advancing doesn't mean that God is somehow withdrawn. And I don't understand why all that took place at 16 years, but I also don't understand all that is necessary for the oak to become the oak, why there has to be drought and why there has to be storms and why there has to be winds. But God is sovereign and there's a real enemy and he's pushing back, but God is in control. And I want to say this, just because you are faithful to God doesn't mean everything works out exactly as you think it will. Listen, in the timing that you think it will. Because these people trust God. They do not compromise. And we think, okay, they didn't do this. Boom, it's all going to be great. And we tend to believe that sometimes. And I just say that to you so you have the right expectations. Sometimes you submit and it doesn't work out. But listen, I do know this, is that God always gives us the grace to keep going. God has always to pro- he's promised always to supply the grace that we need for whatever comes in our life. And here's a great truth I want us just to, if you can grasp this, I think it will make things so much easier. It's one of the greatest truths. Listen, it's to truly believe, not just, oh yeah, I believe life is difficult. No, to understand this life is a battlefield. This life, there will be conflict. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now we know that. Nobody quotes that. Nobody wants to put that on a pillow. We, we like to embroider other things on a pillow, but not that on a pillow, but Jesus told us that to prepare us. Here's why. So when the difficult times do come, you're not going like, I don't understand. I think, I think a lot of times for Christians, that's the hardest thing. It's just like they're not expecting it. Because if you would learn to expect it, it won't be so difficult. You're just like, oh, yeah, this is what it is. Oh, yeah, there you are, Satan. I remember reading about Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer. And he tells this story of just the opposition he'd always face. And at one night, he's like praying. And he looks over and he sees Satan. He's like, oh, it's you again. You know, he just says something. He's just, he learned to expect the opposition. And it didn't frighten him or startle him. He just kept pushing forward. And tonight, I would just say, this is actually an encouraging thing. Listen, it's not supposed to be a hopeless, fatalistic, but expect the difficult things. Jesus said, but he also said, I am with you even until the end of the age. So if you just get that, man, the next time you hit something difficult, you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is what it means to follow after the Lord. Well, I'm going to summarize verses 6 through 23 because we actually jump forward quite a bit. We actually jump forward into the time of Ezra. And I said, like, Ezra doesn't show up until chapter 7, and I think Ezra puts this part here to show this continuity. Because we read there in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes. So this is another king many decades later, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So it was during the, the days of Artaxerxes that this opposition is continuing to happen. And again, Ezra's trying to show with the time of his writing, the people of God, this, this theme of holding on and holding fast and God showing up. And essentially, I'll just kind of summarize. I won't hit every verse, but kind of explain what's going on. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tibiel, and the rest of their associates, they write to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And they write an official letter because they're trying officially to stop the work. At this point, not on the temple, because as we'll see, kind of keep in mind, the temple actually at this point has been rebuilt, which we'll find out next week in chapters 5 and 6. But they're trying to stop the, the, the walls being built. And you're going, wait, didn't Nehemiah come back to build the walls? Exactly. So that's kind of what this is about. I told you a little bit of tenant. You're back and forth. Well, okay, we were going. Anyway. So Artaxerxes is here. Or they're writing a letter to Artaxerxes. And they're essentially appealing. There's a bunch of snobbery talk. Oh, king, mighty Artaxerxes here. You know, yada, yada, yada. But it goes on in verse 12. 
He says this little backup. He says, to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, we send greeting. You know, they're kind of all just flattery. Verse 12. Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from, uh, from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They were rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of records and learn that this city, it's a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces. And that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that the city is rebuilt and its walls finished. You will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Oh, man, what a letter. Again, they're taking truths and half-truths. They're taking things that are partially true and they're twisting it and they're slanting it. Some of them are outright lies, but you can see what they're trying to do. They're doing everything they can to stop the work of God. And the enemy will be relentless in your life as well. He'll do everything he can to stop the work and the will of God in your life. He's ruthless. He's crafty. He slithers. He, he's like a snake, or he's also like a roaring lion. And yet these people are living faithful. They're, 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 they're trusting on These things aren't true. I mean, some of it was true at one point, but not in the way that they're presenting it. Sadly, verse 17, we read the answer. The king sent an answer, and essentially I'll summarize it by saying this. He says in verse 18, the letter you sent to us has been plainly read, and I don't know how much research was done. Verse 19, the king says, I made a decree, and a search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. Mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, David and Solomon, of course. They ruled not just a small territory, but large chunks of land. Ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Oh, this is a threat. I can't have somebody like this back ruling in that area. Verse 21, therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt of the king? Basically, I don't want to lose taxes. I don't want to deal with the rebellious city. All these innuendos and half-truths were believed. Verse 23, then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste. Of course they did. They couldn't wait to tell the news. They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. People of God are living faithful to God. They're doing the right thing, and their motives and their attitudes and actions are being twisted. Some of it was true, but the way it was said was absolutely not true. And I bring this to you because some of you know what that's like to live faithfully to God. And I want to say to you tonight, some of you are going to serve God faithfully. You're going to say the right things and do the right things, and the enemy will take what you do, and he will twist it. He will take what you do and he will slant it. He will pervert it. And to read it or to simply list it, yeah, that's true, but the way you're saying it is absolutely not true. The way you're presenting it is completely opposite of my heart, is completely opposite of the intentions. This can happen at school. This can happen in a relationship. This can happen at work. I had this happen to a really good friend of mine at, at, at Qualcomm. He had a very high position. And he was very careful. He understood what it meant to be a believer at work and when and how and where he could share. 
And somebody who wanted his job essentially took what he did and twisted it. And he got brought into HR and had to present his case. And when the person read off the complaints, he's like, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But it's not the way you're saying it. Yeah, I had my Bible open, but it was my lunch break. And I would read my Bible in my office. Uh, yes, I prayed for this person, but they asked for me to pray for them. Uh, yes, I did talk about Jesus because somebody asked me to and I was responding. You know, and the way it was stated was like, well, you broke these company policies, this and this and this. And he's like, no, listen, this is actually what it is. And what I want to say to you tonight is there's going to be times when you're honoring God with your mind, with your mouth, with your, with your heart, with your actions. And the enemy is going to try to take it and twist it. And you're like, that is not what I meant. That is, that is not true. And what I want to say to you tonight is just keep doing what you're supposed to do. God will vindicate you. The enemy is going to do what the enemy is going to do. You keep trusting God. You keep honoring God. You keep loving God. You keep faithfully serving him in all your areas. And just know, yeah, the enemy is going to do what the enemy does. That's why he's called the enemy. And the enemy sometimes is going to be behind people that you work with and other things, and they're going to be saying things. You just keep being faithful to God, and he will vindicate, and he will show up. He will show up. Sadly, finally, though, what we read here, and it's not the end of the story, verse 23, it comes down like a crashing halt, that the work stopped. Just like the work on the temple stopped, the work on the construction project of the city stops. And in that moment, it must have felt like a death blow. And there will be times in your life it feels like a death blow. What? The dream seems over. The heart is crushed. I don't understand. In times like this, I'm reminded it looks like what Jesus said. Jesus said this in John chapter 12, verse 24. It's in your notes. And I want us to personalize this. Jesus said, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it destroys that life. But if you let it go reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. This is from the message paraphrase. Unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it will remain alone. But if it does, it will produce fruit. And there's times in our life, I am convinced, I always thought, oh, there's one time that happens in our life. I literally thought, okay, early on, salvation, yes, the old Sean is dead. But I want to say to you tonight that, that I think this happens more often. I know what that's like. It caught me off guard even recently. I'm like, there's a death. That, what? I thought I learned this already. But the Lord said, yes, but there's life that I need for you on the other side. There's fruit on the other side that... I need to produce in your life that others can be a part, you know, partake of, but there has to be a death. I don't want to die. Nobody, you know, it sounds noble. Yes, I want to pick up my cross until you actually feel the nails, if, as it were, until you actually feel the death. Wait, what? Uh, I didn't expect it to look like that. What? No. And for some of you, you're in that season and you think, I don't, it's getting dark. I'm getting buried. Everything's going out. I don't understand. Listen, on the other side of that death, Jesus says there's life. There's new life. There's, there's growth. And you'll never get that unless you're willing to submit to him, to trust him, to hold on in that process that God is in control. He's got something he's doing. He's creating you to be a, a giant oak of righteousness. You see, verse 23, though it seems so ominous, was actually the events. And that event led to somebody being raised up. One of the great heroes of the, of the faith. You see, when that decree went out that the walls 
could not be rebuilt. The gates you know, just hung there in disarray. God stirred the heart of a man, the heart of the man who happened to be in a prominent position. You see, there was a man in a prominent position. In fact, he was in the court of the guy who made the decree, Artaxerxes. In fact, he was so close to the king, he tasted all the food and drunk all the wine before the king did it. He was the cupbearer. His name was Nehemiah. At that moment, when it seemed like it was hopeless, God was at work. When it seemed like it was at darkest, no, it's death. This is it. It's done. The empire won. God raises up a Nehemiah who, who fasts, who prays, who goes to, to the city of Jerusalem. And you know the story, rebuilds the wall and rebuilds the city. What I want to say to you tonight, it seems like it's done. It's dead. I don't understand. Listen, that acorn, sometimes that acorn is a dream. It's a vision. It's a ministry. It's something. Many times it's your life. And you'll never get to where God wants you to go. You'll never be, listen, you'll never be who God wants you to be unless you're willing to submit, to surrender all, to say, Lord, search me, know me, try me. Lord, whatever doesn't look like you, take it away. Where there's pride, where there's fear, where there's doubt, where there's, listen, the worst four-letter word in the world, self. <laughs> Where there's just self, Lord, take it out. So all that remains is you, Jesus. So there can be life. I want to abide in you and have your words abide in me. Lord, so that you are the one who lives through me. That is no longer I who live, but Christ lives with me, within me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, on the other side of death, maybe some of you are in that death throes right now. There is life. I'll close with this. You know, one of the reasons that the book of Ezra, Ezra was written, because years later, the people of God, here thousands of years later, the question gets asked, can we continue to live as God's people while under oppression and attack? When we don't understand everything, can we live it as a people of God, even though circumstances have changed and they're not going the way we hope for? And Ezra tells us emphatically, yes. Yes, you can. Yes, we can. I can live faithfully. I can trust. God is good. He will give grace. He will show up. He will show up and he will show off. The answer is a resounding, emphatic yes. We can still serve. We can still trust. We can still worship. We can move forward despite the opposition, through the opposition. And I want to end this way. Listen, the Christian life, like the, like the promised land, it, listen, it's a, a series of hills and valleys. There are, there are great triumphs. And yes, there are valley times. But he is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. His will will always be accomplished. You hold on. I had, friend, I had lunch with a friend this week, and I was thinking about this. And at some point, we were both talking about just some things that God had been doing and over the years, very personal and just challenges. And I, I remember at one point he said this, and oh, it, it haunted me. He says, I understand God's in control. I understand he's doing something. I just wish there didn't have to be any pain in the process, he said. And when he said that, I was just like, I, I didn't fully know what to say. I, I knew I could give him all the right Christian answers, but I knew that's where he was at right now. And I just said, I know it's tough, but I know that God is good and he's working something out. And for some of you, you might feel, I, I don't understand. I don't know. Listen, God is in control and God is working. He'll give you the grace. Just keep going. I didn't put this in your notes, and I, I probably should have, and I forgot, but I was thinking about this. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says this about Jesus. About Jesus, listen. Although he was a, a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
It's like, what? Jesus had to learn obedience? Like, what? I, 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 that just blows my mind. I don't, how, how, what? Although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And I just had this thought. Listen, if, if that had to be true for Jesus, how much more for you and me? How much more for you and me? That same friend who I had lunch with sent me a Devo today, and, and I, we were praying, and something shifted because he was talking about mountains that may never be moved, and he, he read this devotion that just lit him up. He said, no, God still moves mountains, and I was like, amen. It, when I left him, it seemed almost a bit hopeless. There was hope that flooded his life once again. And what I want to say to you tonight is Ezra shows us that God is big. He is always big. At times, the enemy wanted to make him small. No, God is good. He is big. He's so much bigger. He's so much better. Hope. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know God is going to show up. That's Christian hope. It's not just, oh, I wish, I think. No, no, Christian hope is, I know that good is coming because my God is good. I know that he will be faithful to his word, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And yeah, there's going to be buffeting. Yeah, there's going to be struggle in between. But God is building you, me. He's building his church into an oak of righteousness, into the temple and the house of the Lord. Finally, I close with a couple of verses. If you persevere, you're going to be able to say like David. On one hand, you can pray. David said this, humiliate my enemies. It's in the Bible. You can pray it, all right? You're like, that doesn't sound very Christian. I'm just quoting the Bible here, okay? Humiliate my enemies. Let them wear their shame like a coat. I give thanks to the Lord. I praise him in front of everyone. He stands by the helpless and saves them from those who try to put them to death. Listen, that's what Ezra and the people did at that time. Finally, the very next verse is this, a great promise. And I love Psalm 27. Psalm 27, David says this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's a promise someone here, many of us need to hear tonight. We know we're going to see it in heaven, but David declared, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you, God, that you you are in control, that you are good. And yes, there's challenges. You are are training us up. You're raising sons and daughters. David prayed, Lord, you traineth my hand for war. And that was not simply a physical battle. God, you're training us for the, the conflicts that we are in to pray, to endure, to press on. And Lord, I just pray you'd speak peace and encouragement and ministry to your church tonight, that we'd have a vision of that oak. That's what you're building. That's what you're making. That's what you're turning us into. Lord, may we surrender and submit and trust all during the process. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.